to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Weta L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect, how obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy episode. Today we have a good friend, former classmate, multi-talented Rob Hardy. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He recently directed the pilot for Power Book 3, Raising Cannon. This is set in South Jamaica, Queens in the early 1990s. The series is a prequel to the hit Star's dramatic series, Power. Hardy previously directed the pilot for All-American, which is currently gearing to shoot its third season on The CW, and it's also streaming on Netflix. Additionally, he developed the BT network series, The Quad. It was listed by the New York Times as one of the top 15 shows to watch in 2017, and it ran for two seasons. Hardy, who is also an NAACP Image Award nominee, broke into network television at Warner Brothers with his January 2007 director's debut of the Emmy Award-winning show ER. Soon after, Black Enterprise Magazine listed him among the top 40 entertainers under 40. He continues to direct some of the TV's hottest shows, Power Book 2, Ghost, Prodigal Son, Evil, Shameless, Blackish, one of my favorite shows, Stargirl, and How to Get Away with Murder, among others. Hardy began his career as a high school senior with the camcord shot movie G-Man. While pursuing a degree in mechanical engineering at Florida A&M University, he made the leap to film with the low-budget motion picture Chocolate City. This experience earned him the institution's highest honor, the Bernard Hendricks Student Leadership Award, and launched his company, Rainforest Films. The underground buzz on the project soon led to his controversial film, Trois. Hardy not only directed and co-wrote the thriller, he also was instrumental in self-distributing the project to be the fastest independent African-American film to pass the $1 million mark. In 2003, after directing the critically acclaimed thriller, Pandora's Box, he added the role of executive producer to his credits by collaborating with his former business partner, Will Packer, to produce several movies, including No Good Deed, Think Like a Man 2, Think Like a Man, Stomp the Yard, Three Can Play That Game, and Motives. Hardy also wrote and directed the spiritually-themed drama entitled The Gospel, and later directed Stomp the Yard, Homecoming. He also created Bright Step Off TV series for MTV2 that placed a fraternity step competition into the reality TV space. A documentary about Martin Luther King Jr.'s life as a fraternity member called Alpha Man, the Brotherhood of MLK, soon followed. The Hollywood Reporter listed him among 
the new establishment of black power brokers. Florida A&M University awarded him the Meritorious Achievement Award, which is the highest honor bestowed on all of Florida A&M University alumni. After which he received the inaugural Woody Strode Paul Robeson Award of Excellence from his fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity. Hardy formed Rainforest Entertainment in 2014 and partnered with Mitzi Miller, where he developed projects with the likes of Viola Davis, Michael B. Jordan, John Legend, and T.I., among others. Additionally, Hardy also graduated from the New York Films Academy, has directed commercial projects for clients including CNN, TBS, Turner Broadcasting, Honda, Coca-Cola, the Georgia Lottery, the National Cancer Institute. He recently created a foundation to help and place apprentices on TV and film sets called the Rob and Sean Hardy Amazing Stories Foundation. He is also a lifetime member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated and was one of the founding principals of the Bounce TV Network. He is a public speaker with a one-man live stage series called Amazing Stories. He also served as a keynote graduation speaker for the 2018 graduation at Florida A&M University. He resides in Atlanta, Georgia with his wife and two sons. I met Rob Hardy at Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, which sits at the highest of seven hills in Tallahassee, Florida. I have known him since 1991. I so remember the production of Chocolate City, which starred my line sister, Kelsey Scott, amongst many other Rattlers. He is married to my line sister, Sean Hardy. Welcome, Rob Hardy, to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Hey, I appreciate you having me. Thanks for joining me today. So what got you interested in film initially? I grew up in Philadelphia, Philly, PA, Germantown, to be exact. Oh, you're an Eagles fan? All day. I see you are, too. That's why we be vibing, though. We still there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, when I was in junior high, I took a video elective class. And it was the first time I saw a camcorder and we got a chance to write and direct our own projects. We shot them in class. And then when it was over, you know, we showed them to like, you know, the school and you got a reaction. And immediately I was hooked. And then like not too long after that, we were doing little, you know, music videos in my neighborhood with a friend who had a camcorder. And this was all happening around the time when like Spike Lee was out you know, with school days and Robert Townsend was out where she's got a habit. So it felt like it was like this black renaissance of movies that led to me doing a movie with some friends, a little camcorder movie with some friends in high school. And once that happened, I was hooked because we showed it to the school and people seemed to like it. And people were like, yo, you should do this. And I was already seeing the spikes and the Robert Townsend's of the world out there. So I figured, yeah, that's going to be me. Was this a performing arts school or was it just an elective at your high school? Nah, so the video class was just an elective at my junior high school. And my high school was not a performing arts high school. It was a college prep school. So they didn't have a video class or anything like that. But there was a kid the year before I did my movie 
who shot a mini movie on his camcorder. And I was like, yo, I'm going to work with that kid, except we're going to do my movie. He's going to shoot it, and I'm going to direct it, and that's how we're going to parlay it. And I hooked up with him. He was like, okay, cool. I wrote it and directed it, and he shot it. So how did you decide to major in engineering, although you had this film passion that you wanted to pursue? You know, that's 100% my dad. He basically was a traditional guy. So he felt like film didn't sound like a real career. We didn't live in Hollywood and we ain't no filmmakers. So he felt like, you know, do engineering, business, science, or computers because you can make a stable living out of that, right? And he felt like, you know, as your dad, my job is to teach you how to take care of yourself. And if you have one of these careers, you could get a check. So the deal was is that I would pick one of those majors and then I could go to film school for grad school. So I chose mechanical engineering because I felt like through that, I could figure out a way to like hustle my way into special effects and just figure out a way to hustle my way into directing. So how did you and Will Packer connect at FAMU? So we were two guys that wanted to go to other colleges that didn't get the money. And we both wound up at the same pre-college engineering program. So, you know, I was going to go to Brown University. He was going to go to UPenn. And neither of us got the money that we needed. And we both wound up at FAM in this summer program. We were like fast friends. It was immediate. Where did the name Rainforest Productions come from? So Rainforest was the name that, because at the time in the 90s, Saving the rainforest was like a big, like global issue, right? Because people were burning it down. And in the rainforest, that provides the globe with like 70% of its oxygen for the whole planet from that one source. And, you know, with all the plants and everything, they use that to like make medicine. So we were thinking that like the rainforest is a precious resource that needs to be protected, that's being destroyed. Well, at the same time, you had like, Rodney King and all this crazy stuff. And we felt like as black people, we are a precious resource and we need to be realized and we need to be protected and respected. So that was a correlation between the rainforest and, you know, black people, because we are a precious resource and we contribute a lot to the globe. So tell me how you basically came up with the idea of filming Chocolate City at FAMU. Chocolate City. Yeah. So when I was a sophomore, I was interested in pledging Alpha or Alpha Phi Alpha. And so in the process of going through all that to become a member of the fraternity, me and my line brothers got to know each other pretty well. So a lot of them got a chance to see the film that I did in high school. So cut to the summer after I pledged. I'm on an internship for engineering and I was miserable because I wasn't feeling that kind of work. And this movie came out, Menace of Society, and I was inspired and I got the bug again. I was like, man, I'm over here doing this thing I don't like, but Menace is out and the Hughes brothers are doing their thing and Lorenz Tate is old dog and man, I need to be doing that. And so my line brother was like, yeah, but you did that movie in high school, right? So why don't you do a movie at FAM? And that like lit a fire in me. And so for the rest of the summer, I spent writing what will become Chocolate City on the job. I remember Chocolate City like it was yesterday. I still have the VHS. Ah, you know, I appreciate that. (laughs) Yes. yes. What did you learn about film from that production of Chocolate City? Because I'm sure it was different than your first high school production. Yeah, I learned that making a film is hard. 
And at the time we shot it on film. So it wasn't like before I'd only seen a camcorder. So I thought that like a film camera was the same thing. Like you take film, stick it in and press record. But not gotta like load the film and wind it. And you, oh, have, really? you have like a separate sound thing and you have to like light it in a certain way. So we were working with like FH Florida State film students who did the technical part. And then I was doing, you know, me and the fam, you homeboys and homegirls, we were doing the creative. So it was just a big collaborative thing. And there were just so many film terms that I didn't know. And like one of the biggest thing was like, I didn't know that like if you have a scene and people are drinking alcohol, that it's fake. So, you know, in our movie, if somebody's drinking a 40, they're really drinking a 40. If somebody pulls a gun, it's a real gun that works. We're, doing all, you know, we're just doing all that. And, you know, after a while, you're on, like, take seven, and somebody's, like, three forties in, and they're just, like, <laughs> you out. Like, Rob, I ain't doing that. No. Like, hey. So then the FSU boys are like, hey, so you know it's supposed to be fake alcohol, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Next time, you know what I'm saying? So we just didn't know. We were just freestyling with it, keeping it authentic. So how did you do your casting? We had a big open casting session. I forget in what dorm that was. You know, it might have been Perry Page. We had like little advertisements all over campus and people would just come through. And we had these auditions over three days and we picked our cast off of that. And, you know, because it was like my first real movie, the script wasn't really that good. So it kind of didn't make sense. And that joke was like three hours long when we first edited it. You know what I'm saying? But hey, man, hey, we were shooting and it was ours. You know, it was a fam you thing. So it was exciting. I remember filming at Palmetto North. I was like, this is cool. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, it, was, it was love. It was like, like we had the whole movie. And then my homeboy from high school did this song called Chocolate City that Motown picked up. And then we shot the video. So the Palmetto scene was when we were shooting a music video for Chocolate City and the Deltas came through and y'all stepped for us in the video. And the budget for that music video was five times bigger than the whole movie budget. How did you get funding for the movie? How did you pay for it? So we got some money from student government. Basically, they had to like sweep their budget at the end of every year. That's how like Be Out Day got their money. So we were like, well, rather than just using that money to like buy some more shrimp for Be Out Day, why not, you know, invest in our movie and then y'all can all have your names in the credit and it'll be like the fam you think. So we did that and then we got like a lot of equipment donated to us for the show since Vivian Hobbs, Dr. Vivian Hobbs is our advisor. So she like signed off on it for us. So they like lent her the equipment and we shot with it. So after Chocolate City, what was your next movie? After Chocolate City, we hustled that into a video deal and then we moved to Atlanta and we were the starving artist dudes for a minute. And then we finally hustled up some more money and shot this movie called Twa, this Menage Twa movie. So it was at the time, it was me, Will, and Greg Anderson. We shot our movie with Kenya Moore and Gary Dorden, a Philly boy too, from CSI. Yeah, so that was our next movie. So how did you do funding for it? That was private investors. So the whole plan for that was each one of the three of us was going to raise 10000 right? So, okay, we're going to raise 10000 We're going to shoot it on HD because HD cameras just came out. We're going to shoot it at our house in Jonesboro, Georgia. We're going to keep the budget low. And then once we had that money, then somebody else will pop up and they say, yo, you already got 30. If you can get to 50, you can get this film camera. 
And so it's easy to get to 50 if you already have 30. Because you go to friends and family, but then once you have that money, then they'll go to another friends and family and get the other 20. And that's just how it kept going. You got equipment like that, then you could get Kenya Moore as an actress. And before you know it, we had raised like $100,000. But if you would have told us that we need 100000 to shoot that movie, we never would have started. We would have said, oh, we can't do that. So it was kind of more like ignorance is bliss. How'd you market it? After we shot it, we took it to Hollywood and nobody wanted to pick it up. So we went to the Acapulco Black Film Festival and we met a group of investors that were like, yo, if y'all got a plan to release it, then, you know, we'll help give you the money. So we put together a plan and we partnered at the time with investors, including Bernard Bronner, who had Upscale Magazine. So we did a lot of stuff on magazine covers, hair shows, hand-to-hand, radio ads, and we did it all ourselves. We were 100% independent. The movie came out on 50 screens and had the highest average per theater of any movie in the country. And we were tracking in the trades. So Sony called our house in Jonesboro. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is this Rainforest releasing with this little movie that's making this money? And, you know, that call changed our lives. Okay. So what was next after that call? Well, so we got a chance to go to L.A. And we did a deal with them for the home video deal. And it was crazy because we had to spend our profits just to be able to get the squad video up to snuff to pass their quality control. That was a lesson. And then we went to Sony with all these big ideas because at the time, like the best man, the brothers, two can play that game. Like all the black romantic comedies were hot and popping. So we went over there like, yo, we got this. We got our romantic comedy. It's called this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. what about SWAT 2? We're like, SWAT 2? We don't want to do that. But at the time, you know, we needed money to keep the lights on. So Twad 2 became Pandora's Box. That was the first time that we actually got paid to do a movie. And so that that started it. Tell me about your first experience being an executive producer. And what movie it was? First executive producer movie was Stomp the Yard. And so that was a movie where we had just done a movie, The Gospel, for Sony. And that was like our first major release. And it came out and, you know, was number five in the country, which is a big deal for us. So we get to Stomp the Yard movie. I love that movie. It made me think of fam. And a lot of cameos by fam Ewans in on, it, man. too. Come on, so it listen, nice. yeah. listen. It is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> we some fam you cats, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> so now we were going to go do this movie, Stomp the Yard, and was going to produce it. But the studio was like, nah, we want a music video guy because we want the visuals for the performance sequences to look like a music video. So there was this amazing director that we had worked with named Sylvain White. So he came in and he killed the movie. And that was my first time executive producing. It was like a double-edged sword because you're working, you know, on this great project. You're working with another talented director who kills the game. But after that movie came out, it was almost like people forgot that I ever directed. And they was like, yo, y'all some amazing producers let's do this again i would be like yeah yeah, but i got this project i want to direct and they'd be like nah you're not on director y'all the producing cats right y'all like batman and robin just produce so you know i knew that i was gonna have to make some decisions about you know my career and how i wanted to play it for non-film people like me can you explain the difference between executive producing and i guess producing 
and directing. I like what the difference is as far as the skill set and what you actually Absolutely. So let's talk about like a sport. So I'm a football guy or you could be basketball. The director is the coach. You design the plays. The players are the actors. So you design plays showing where the actors, where they're going to go and stand, what the camera's going to do, et cetera, et cetera. The producer is the GM, the general manager. They hire all of the personnel, the staff, and all the people that assist the coach. The assistant coaches, they go into free agency and get the different actors. That's the producer. The exec producer is, you know, tied to the ownership. So they're an exec that's tied to the money. So it's almost like they're a liaison between, you know, if it's the Eagles, Lori, if it's, you know, the Cowboys, Jerry Jones, and, you know, upper management and lower management. Okay, that makes sense. So what do you enjoy the most? Director, coaching. Director, director, coaching. Yeah, okay. All day. okay, okay. What about writing? Did you do a lot of writing as well? I do, but writing was more so because I didn't know writers. I needed something to direct. So I was like, I write it. And so you start meeting writers that are really good and you guys have like the same vibe. So now writing for me is more so helping to write some loose ideas of what the movie or show could be. And you find a writer that, you know, has a similar vibe and then they'll go off and write it and you may give like suggestions or notes. So is it hard to be like in one project to be the writer, the director, producer? Because I know in some films you see the same name and they do a lot of different roles. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's just time consuming. I mean, I've had some things where I've done all three, you know what I'm saying? Or just produce and direct. But every time you like put on like another hat like that, it just takes a lot more time. So what made you and Will go separate ways? It seems like you're more into the TV and he's more into, I guess, movies. Going back to after Stomp the Yard and just having that conversation and him saying, hey man, we got an opportunity to make, you know, some some good movies and we have some good momentum over here. You know what I'm saying? But I know you want to direct And, you know, as movie guys, you get pigeonholed, right? So when we were doing the Twa movies, because all those movies were like erotic thrillers for a while, they only want us to do that. Then I I did the exact opposite where I went and did the gospel movie. So then people only wanted me to do gospel movies. There wasn't a lot of room for me to do a lot of other stuff. And even though we would set up stuff for us to do together, I'm directing, he's producing, none of those projects happened for whatever reason. And then TV gave me an opportunity to apprentice. And I did that show ER show. And what's interesting was, is that that was a whole new world because now I'm doing mainstream primetime TV shows versus, you know, in our movie game, it was mostly, you know, urban movies, which is great, but it was totally different. The more I started doing TV and me and Will were still produced together, we just weren't working together as much as we used to. And our tastes were just changing as far as like what we wanted to do, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it was just easier for us to kind of each do our own thing and then just be homeboys. He's been mainly doing movies and he does some TV and I've been really doing TV and I'm just now getting back into movies. Okay. FAMU awarded you the Notorious Achievement Award. Tell me what it meant to you and tell me what attending FAMU has meant to you overall. 
Well, starting with going to fam, like what that meant to me, that meant everything to me, you know what I'm saying? And it meant so much to me because I didn't want to go. You know what I'm saying? I just did. It was no shade. I just had never been to Tallahassee before I was going to the school. And none of my friends were going there. So it just seemed like, you know, you're going to school in like Arizona or something like that, right? But then you get down there and at the time it was all these wonderful black people that were smarter than you and flyer than you and more swagged out than you. And I was pretty confident, you know what I'm saying? I still am. But it didn't matter because whatever you are, somebody got that on 10 from Mississippi or Delaware or Missouri or Duluth, whatever it is, they got it. And everybody had like a hustle. So it was like, you know, you're there and you got whatever your major is, but on the side, you starting a pirate radio station or you got clothes or you're modeling or you washing cars or cooking chicken wings. Whatever that is, everybody had a hustle and it was like the vibe of our school. And it kind of felt like we were outlaws a little bit because we weren't like Morehouse and Spelman and Hampton. We was from fam. So it was like Cash, you know, had a chip on their shoulder and a little edge to them and their chest poked out. You know what I'm saying? And you go to Atlanta and the finest girls up there with an attitude will go to your school. You know what I'm saying? And we would go to your party and take your party over because we were supposed to because we go to fam. Everything about that was just, I was feeling that. And so to be able to be a part of that in that era when Humphreys was president and, you know, it was like special. And then to be able to be acknowledged by getting an award that says, hey, man, you know, we salute you or we honor you for representing our school well means a lot because that's my folks and that's what made me. And we did what we did because that school gave us the support. I met my wife and fam, my best friends from fam, you know, my kids, all my kids, godparents are from fam. I mean, that's just kind of what it is. I wouldn't trade up anything. It's funny, when I went to FAMU, I, I could say I really didn't want to go. I wanted to go to HBCU and I wanted to major in physical therapy. And there was only two HBCUs that had physical therapy, Howard and FAM. And I figured FAM was closer. I remember I didn't like orange and green when I got down there. I'm like, um, let me get a black sweatshirt. But then after I went to Tops, everything changed. <laughs> everything changed, which is a orientation program that is about hope. Two or three days prior to starting FAMU, after those three days, I was hooked. Hey, listen, I remember that house program and sitting up in that auditorium, and I forget my man's name that was out there. He said, hey, man, all y'all with these girlfriends and boyfriends back home, come the end of first semester, that's going to be killed and dead. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> hey. It was a good time in fam. I'm going to say that. Yeah, it was. It was. Part of the purpose of my podcast is to talk with people who have overcome obstacles to make it to their finish line. Tell me about some of, I guess, the most difficult obstacles that you faced in your career. Yeah. Some of them you kind of mentioned before, but. It was number one, you know, initially just trying to get out the gate, you know, transitioning from being the film guys at FAM and, you know, we were competent dudes and we thought we were pretty popular and we had this momentum to come into the big city of Atlanta and nobody gave a damn, you know what I'm saying? Atlanta's a great city, but we were like back on the scene trying to hustle and all of our friends graduated and had like real jobs 
with benefits and money and they drove like explorers and like some broke dudes living like freshmen in Jonesboro. It took a while. It was a lot of dark days of like chasing leads just to try to get on somewhere. And it was a year before we got our first paid gig. And between me and Will, we lived off of 18,000 together in our first year. And just, you know, putting clothes on layaway and doing all that stuff and doing our jobs was like the first thing. At the time, my dad was sick. He passed the cancer. But so all that was happening during that time of being starving artists. And then I think the next phase was transitioning from movies to TV. And it was the fact that I got this now successful company with my best friend and we're doing this and we're shooting movies. And I got the number one movie in the country in Stomp the Yard. But then I go on ER, I'm intern boy. So I start all over at the bottom, you know, a fly on the wall trying to figure out TV. And in TV, it's not my company. I'm not the guy. I'm just the one black guy on this set. And I might be the only person that looks like me, which is just very different from how I've been living my life in Atlanta. So it just took me a while to kind of figure out how to navigate that and to turn one job into the next. Those are just some of the obstacles you know you face and then try to turn that into a career and trying to balance that with like having a family and having kids and a wife and trying to, you know, be everywhere. You know what I'm saying? So how do you remain humble and not let the business like overtake you and your life? Well, I'm Robert and Gladys boy. You know what I'm saying? Okay. That's that just, that just, that just ain't how they did it. You know what I'm saying? It was definitely, you know, more of a, we expect you to do great things because you are a boy. And then we expect you to look out for people and to give back and serve our community. Those are the expectations. And it was kind of always like, if you go, there's nothing wrong with balling out, but if you go and ball out and it's just about you being the guy or the girl, then they felt like you wasted your slot and your opportunity. So that was kind of like how it always was. And that's how we raised our kids to be. And the woman I married is on that. And you know what I'm saying? And that's kind of what it was. So after you graduated and start working in film, what did your dad say? Because I know he wanted you to major in mechanical engineering. You Yeah, you know, it was interesting because I think that once I graduated and got that real piece of paper that said I have a engineering degree, he was cool. He was supportive because he felt like you know how to take care of yourself. It's kind of like you have a kid and you teach your kid how to fight or how to like start a fire. You feel like you've given them a skill where they can like take care of themselves if you're not around. And that's how it was for him. My mom was the exact opposite. She supported me the whole way in college. And then when we graduated and had these fake jobs, she was like, hey, well, what about like health insurance? What about mm-hmm. that? You know, how you gonna marry somebody if you ain't got no money? <laughs> I was like, nah, you know, the money's gonna come though, mom. You know, you know, he was very supportive and he passed away. We had our Trois movie. We had this big ad in Vibe magazine because that was like the hot magazine back then. And our ad came out in Vibe and he got to see that. And it had like the release date on there so he knew it was coming out. And he didn't make it so the movie came out, but he knew that it was happening. So he was proud. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how do you split your time between you're in Atlanta, like LA, you go to New York film and other places? How does that work with life and kids and wife? And- hey, man, 
it's an evolving thing. You know what I'm saying? There's some years you're on the road more, others you're in Atlanta more, always doing some version of working, whether you're shooting or you're developing, you know, or whatever. And usually if I'm not working, I'm doing something at home with the boys, with my wife. And then it's just you trying to pick little times where you can go kick it with your homeboys in between there. If you could talk to your 17-year-old self, like now, what advice would you give your 17-year-old self? Enjoy the ride, man. I'd be like, yo, you can go and hustle and get your grind on, but hey, enjoy every phase. Enjoy being broke. Enjoy being in them streets. You know what I'm saying? Just enjoy everything. It's only a phase. So when that phase is gone, you on to the next thing and you can't get the other thing back because you're only going to be in your low 20s one time. And, you know, at that time, we all in them streets. So my man, be in them streets. Just, you know, be careful in them streets. You know what I'm saying? But I, I would just say enjoy every phase. I did. I could have enjoyed it more, but I enjoyed it. Okay. What's your greatest fear now? Or do you have any? All my greatest fears are tied to my kids, tied to my kids and my family, you know, and that's got a lot more to do with, you know, the tone of this country and what's going on. And just wanting to always, as a father, as a husband, as a man, you want to always make sure your people are good. You know what I'm saying? And there's just, you know, certain things that you see that just don't sit well with me. Those tap into what my fears are. I just want to make sure that my people are good. I'm less concerned about myself and definitely more about them. Okay. So what's in the works for you now that you can share? Well, I just shot a pilot, which is the first episode for Power Book 3, Raising Canaan. So in the power verse, they got the power show with Ghost and Tasha, for those of y'all that watch Power. And, you know, Ghost died and... Then Tasha went to jail. And so then in the sequel to that, which is Power Book 2, Ghost, it's all about their son, Tariq, and how he's in college and he's changing as a young man. And Mary J. Blige is like his new mentor. She's, you know, a drug dealer and everything. But Raising Canaan is the prequel to that. So it's the show based on 50 Cent's character in the 90s. So it's like Goodfellas in 1991, Queens. So I went and got a chance to do that. So that's my era. That's obviously when we came out of high school. So it's up north. So it's Timberlands and Cross Colors and Tommy Hill figures, you know, and all that stuff, you know, and the girls would like the high-low haircuts or whatever. So that was fun. Myself and I have a producer partner, Mitzi Miller, who also went to fam. We're developing a lot of new shows. So we have a movie that we're developing with Viola Davis. And we have a TV series that we're developing with Michael B. Jordan's company. So what's the movie with Balladay's? What I can tell you is the movie called Two Butterflies, and it is set up at Amazon Studios. She's a producer on the project, and it's about two women that are sisters that are dealing with family secrets and dementia. Mm, interesting. When you direct different types of shows, is there a different skill set, or is it all just directing? It's all directing, but it's a different skill set because like the process of directing and working with actors is the same. It's trying to make them feel comfortable and safe and give them what they need. But the genre is what makes it different. Like sci-fi is going to be different from the teen drama or the comedy or something superhero. 
So that's kind of like, you know, where like the genres change, but the method of how you prepare and how you talk to an actor is still the same. Interesting. Any words of advice for aspiring directors, producers, filmmakers? Yeah, I tell filmmakers to go make films. Our business ain't high school. It's not college. You're not going to go put in a certain number of years and somebody gives you a piece of paper and says, now you're a filmmaker. Just doesn't work. There are people that from all over the world that want to do this that never make it. It's just a fact. If you want to do it that bad, go do it. Start shooting stuff. Start putting your own stuff together so that way you get better. And then when somebody says, I have an opportunity, you can say, look at the stuff I've done. And if you don't know how to do it yourself, read up on it. And then, you know, look for foundations or theater troops or whatever at your church, at your school, you know, in your city that are doing that and start working your way up while you hustle up your passion on the side. Okay. So this is a personal question. So how, let's say, if I wanted to get into medical consulting on film or TV, how would I go about that? Well, there are a couple ways. Way one is through the film office. So like, let's say you live in, you're in Illinois. You hit up the Chicago Film Commission. Give them your credentials and just say, hey, you know, I'm available to be a med tech advisor. That's number one. Number two, you get a list of all of the shows from them that shoot in Chicago in the Chicago area. So you got like Chicago Med, Chicago Fire, anything like that. So then you call up, which I think is like Dick Wolf Productions. So you call up the productions and say, hey, here's who I am and here's what I want to do. Can we set up a meeting? And you come in and you talk about it and you market yourself to do that. And then you also do the same thing with, you know, music video projects and, you know, figure out who the production companies are and you go through and you do these meet and greets to let people know that you're out there. And, you know, I've done ER and Grey's Anatomy and we had med techs on both of those. And they were all different people. You talk to the doctor and they show you how to use the equipment and what the terminology is and the procedures and they tech your people. And it's a nice job. Okay, I'll do that. Tell me about your foundation, Amazing Stories. So Amazing Stories Foundation, it's a foundation that me and my wife, who happens to be your line sister, Sean Hart, yes, Sean. Is actually, yes. <laughs> we founded that. And Nina Packer, who also went to FAM, another Delta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Apparently, this is where we are. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> another Delta, basically, she runs the foundation. And it's basically set up to where we live in Atlanta. And I'm a you know director producer here, and a lot of times the crews aren't as diverse as our city is. And I don't mean like the writer, director, producer crews. I mean like people that shoot, that do makeup, hair, serve food, drive trucks. You know, so we put a foundation together that goes into our communities here, and you know identifies people of color and women and trains them to be production assistants on these sets. And then we pay them. And we do that in the city, East Point. And the mayor, Dina Ingram, is a FAMU grad. You know, and East Point is home of Outcast, And, you know, there's a lot of rich history down there, you know. So when our industry folks come through to talk to our students, they got to come to the neighborhood. They got to come to the neighborhood and talk to our people. And then when they leave and go back to their sets, the word is, it's like, man, I got to go back to East Point to get some more of them great people. 
because man, they doing it in these points. And that changes the narrative about our community. And that lets people know that there's special stuff happening in our areas where we live. And we got smart people that work hard, you know, that's going to show up. They just need an opportunity. So that's what Amazing Stories is here to do. How long have you had the foundation? It's two years. So right now we are in our second week of training and we partnered with Warner Media, Warner Brothers, and City East Point and the Georgia Production Partnership. So we're really excited about it. We COVID friendly, but we have a strong class of people that's in there right now. Okay. Any last minute pearls to my listeners? Hey man, I would just say, enjoy your life, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't sit back and think, you know, if you had this or somebody else's job or somebody else's spouse or life, then you'd be happy. Nah, you look at your life and figure out the things that make you feel the best. And at whatever phase that you're in, you know, lean into those little things that make you happy while you have your goals and you hustle to get your goals met on the side. But while you hustle to meet your goals, man, just keep enjoying it, man. You know what I'm saying? Because we only got one trip around this thing. So let's get it, man. For real. That's true. And it's good advice, especially during this year, which 2020, who would have thought this year would be what it is? So good words of advice. Take heed to heart. Enjoy today because you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. You don't. You know what I'm saying? You know, tonight we ate like kings and queens. You know what I'm saying? I don't know about tomorrow, but tonight... <laughs> <laughs> it's all good money. So thanks for joining me today. Tell Sean I said hello. I'll do that. I appreciate that. And look, hey, stay warm up there. That wraps up this episode of Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Please, if you already haven't, download Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or possible show topics, please email Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, OLB, Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. Again, that is Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, O as in Omaha, L as in Love, B as in Brown at gmail.com. Dr. Brown can also be reached via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Handle We OUI Life, L I V E. We OUI Love, L O V E. Again, We OUI Life, L I V E. We OUI Love. Thank you, and please tune in again.